RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. This is Jocelyn Gonzalez from Studio 360. I've learned a lot about the records I love and don't love from Classic Album Sundays. It's a program of listening events created by broadcaster and journalist Colleen Cosmo Murphy, which for a music fan can sometimes feel like going to church. And that's fitting because they're always held on Sundays. At these events, I learned about an album from artists, producers, and other smart music people. Then, the lights went down, the phones went off, and the audience listened to the album together, straight through, no interruptions. That's it, it seems really simple. But hearing a record on pristine vinyl through a world-class sound system revealed things I never noticed before. The experience was illuminating and often moving, even when the needle skipped. To bring some of that album worship here to Studio 360, we're teaming up with CAS for a series of stories called This Woman's Work, highlighting classic albums by female artists. The title you probably figured out borrows from the song by Kate Bush, an artist we hope to feature in this series. These records represent women musicians at the peak of their creative powers and whose influence is felt all over the musical map. And this first story focuses on one of the most significant albums of the American punk movement, one that fused rock with freeform poetry and drew many into the artistic nexus of New York City in the mid-1970s. Here's Colleen. This is arguably one of the most arresting opening lines on a debut album. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. It's delivered with unequivocal power, and for many, it's the first introduction to an artist who will become one of the most important game changers of rock and roll. A my sleeve, thick. Stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. me. I remember hearing this opening indictment when listening to the album for the first time in my teenage bedroom. It threw me into the nucleus of Patti Smith's thrilling and scary environs, worlds away from my suburban hometown to the dirt, the chaos, and the raw energy of New York City. And it made me feel like I could do anything. In fact, I moved to the city a few short years later. You know, I look so proud. Punk is built upon a DIY attitude, and along with the Stooges and the MC5, Patti Smith is considered by many to be one of punk rock's founding mothers. Her debut album, Horses, was released at the end of 1975, a full five months before the first Ramones album, but it ignited the punk explosion more in personality rather than musicality. The album's sprawling freeform music and poetry was the antithesis of the three-minute, three-chord sound for which punk would eventually become known, as the Patti Smith Group guitarist Lenny Kay remembers. Especially at that time, punk had yet to harden into a specific definition. Uh, it wasn't, say, the Ramones template that it would become. It was mostly an attitude of wanting to assume some kind of responsibility for oneself and find your own way. Oh, 
We'll return to the show in a moment, but first I want to remind you that you can keep up with what we're looking at and working on by following us on Twitter, at Studio 360 Show. And now, back to our story. As the 60s slipped into the 70s, New York City was experiencing an identity crisis, and rock and roll was experiencing a spirituality crisis. There was a general cynicism toward hippie ideals, and New York City in particular was more adept at celebrating the individual. A cohesive cultural center had not yet replaced the unifying force field of the 60s counterculture movement. This was especially true with music, as different experimental strains began to fan out, inspired by other forward-thinking late 60s New York acts like the Velvet Underground and the East Village electronic duo The Silver Apples. Around this time, Lenny Kay was working in a record shop and doing some writing on the side. And he remembers that there were few venues for local bands and new acts to play. But then he saw a poster for the New York Dolls and welcomed it as a new chapter in the downtown music scene. With their flamboyant cross-dressing and defiant posturing, the New York Dolls set the stage for glam rock a fusion of the edgy rock and roll of the Stooges and the theatrical cabaret scene that was flourishing in Greenwich Village's gay community, a community galvanized by the Stonewall Uprising in 1969. The scene of early 70s New York City isn't just the backdrop to the story of Patti Smith's 1975 album Horses. I believe the city itself is the album's greatest external influence. Patti Smith left her New Jersey working-class town for New York City in the late 60s. She befriended future superstar photographer Robert Maplethorpe and became an artist in a complete sense of the word and ideal. And then the city molded her. She worked in bookshops, met the beat poets Gregory Corso, Allen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs while living at the Chelsea Hotel. She starred alongside drag performance artist Wayne County in the plays Femme Fatale and Islands. She co-wrote and starred in her lover Sam Shepard's play Cowboy Mouth. And she wrote loads of poetry, but she didn't read it. She performed it, accompanied by her friend Lenny Kay, with whom she had hit it off immediately. She came down to the record store where I was working, Village Oldies on Bleecker Street, and, you know, we kind of dance around. I put some of our favorite records on, The Bristol Stomp, uh, Maureen Gray's Today's the Day, My Hero by the Blue Notes, and we just got to be friendly. Smith approached Kate to play with her at St. Mark's Poetry Project. And when uh, she was going to do her first poetry reading in February of 1971 at St. Mark's, she wanted to shake it up a little bit. She didn't want to do just a kind of boring recitation. And so she knew I played a little guitar, and she asked me if I could simulate a car crash on the guitar, which I could. (laughs) So uh, we performed on February 10th, 1971 at St. Mark's. Thanks a lot. 
There was a star-studded audience at St. Mark's that night, including Andy Warhol himself. The applause was rather uh, overwhelming. And at that time, Patty perhaps could have continued in that vein, but she felt that she wasn't ready, that she, she had a, a sense of who she needed to be before. Basically, it wasn't to get ahead. It was mostly just to kind of get a hint of what the future might be if it swung our way. Smith and Kay didn't realize it at the time, but this was a cataclysmic event that would trigger a series of aftershocks. They'd go on to open for Phil Oaks at Max's Kansas City and perform at the cabaret club Reno Sweeney as the opening act for Warhol's superstar Holly Woodlawn. And they'd put on Smith's own self-styled performance entitled Rock and Rimbaud, a tribute to her muse and imaginary boyfriend, French symbolist poet Arthur Rimbaud. The other force that helped give birth to horses is the opening of a certain venue on the Bowery. When Hilly Crystal opened CBGB and Omfug. Country, bluegrass, blues, and Omfug, uh, other music for uplifting gourmandizers. He booked acts that fit that bill in the club's opening weeks. He didn't have a grand plan to make it the American home for the burgeoning punk rock scene. The rise of CBGBs and its dynasty of acts, including the Ramones, Television, the Talking Heads, and Blondie, not only mirror, but actually frame the rise of Patti Smith and her group. Along with Kay, Patti enlisted keyboard player Richard Soule. She poached bassist Ivan Krall from Blondie and drummer J.D. Doherty from the Mumps to form her group. Luckily for them, CBGBs afforded the band the artistic freedom and an open-minded audience to explore their musical ideas, songwriting, and performance style. Journalists and A&R record execs started trekking downtown to check out the commotion, and CBs became the nexus of a scene. Patti Smith and her group were working hard, performing two shows a night, four nights a week, for seven consecutive weeks. It was during this stint that legendary A&R man Clive Davis came down to check them out. And he had heard of what Patty does, and he needed a maverick for his, his new label. And he also appreciated artists who gave 110% on stage. He wanted total commitment from that artist. And uh, he saw that in Patty, and uh, he took a chance with us. Smith and Kay had previously recorded her debut single, a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe and the B-side Piss Factory at Hendrix's Electric Lady Studios. They returned there with John Cale, the former cellist with the Velvet Underground, as their album producer. They liked the idea of his artistic heritage, but things didn't go as smoothly as planned. I do believe that John had a slightly different idea on how to approach the record than us. I think he was very much into uh, his orchestral period. He liked the Beach Boys. He wanted to really explore all the soundscapes that were possible, and we needed to defend who we were at that moment in time. For instance, we wanted to improvise on Birdland. And John 
you know, thought perhaps it could be expanded horizontally, but we wanted to capture a moment. And so his input was, well, if you want to improvise, you got to have a great improvisation. You can't settle. It's just like, you just can't like, oh, this is live, we're doing it, and onward and upward. Birdlands, which started out as a three or four minute poem set to music, uh, started growing and growing until it reached, you know, past the six minute mark. A pretty good take there. And then kept on going until Patty burst through and created the track that was on horses. On Horses, Patti Smith summoned some of the great spirits of rock, recording the album's closing song, Elegy, on the 18th of September, the anniversary of Hendrix's death. I just don't know what to do The song she co-wrote with television's Tom Verlaine centered upon another one of her idols, Jim Morrison, who she envisioned as an angel with stone wings in a dream, crying for him to break it up. We rolled on the ground, he stretched out his wings, the north flew away and he started to sing. And as much as Patti Smith's debut album, Horses, referenced the rock gods, it also drew free-form inspiration from jazz visionaries. We drew as much from elements of free jazz, which both Patti and I liked, Albert Eiler and John Coltrane. You know, the sense of, of noise and sound and freedom from melody and rhythm, where you just kind of let things move into being the music of the spheres. Patty's poetry was always at the core. Inspired by Bob Dylan, Smith was joining the forces of spoken word with music, much in the way artists like The Last Poets and Gil Scott Heron were making the same connection in black music. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. Smith also invokes the spirit of literature, name-checking her muse, Rimbaud, and referencing the beautiful sexual male Johnny from her friend William Burroughs' novel, The Wild Boys, in her song, Land. Suddenly, Johnny gets a feeling He 
she developed it and improvised on it, because we were very much into improvisation, giving her a field of energy in which she could let her imagination roam. With touchstones of Rimbaud, Shakespeare, and Coltrane, how can Patti Smith's debut album, Horses, be considered as one of the progenitors of punk? It's that opening indictment in the album's first track. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. This is a statement of artistic purpose, that you are going to be in control of your art and, and your sense of persona. I believe that's what the album represents to so many people, certainly to us. It may not seem obvious, but singer-songwriter Katie Tunstall is one of the many, many artists who have been inspired by Patti Smith, and in particular, that album opener. This way of screaming, of delivering these lyrics, and really you drop whatever you're doing and listen to the rest of it. Katie remembers how Patti Smith's Horses was integral to her career and her own platinum-selling debut, Eye to the Telescope. Two, three, It was probably in my later 20s when it really changed everything, looking at the cover of that record. So I'd left Scotland and I was sitting in the basement flat I'd rented in London for an extortionate amount of money while they were doing renovations on the ground floor above. I basically wasn't getting any sleep. I remember sitting in the flat about two in the morning listening to some music, but I was just holding the Horses album in my hands. And I was thinking about how think about photography more really just the fact that you know there's that indigenous belief that you're capturing someone's soul and there's something in it you know that you can take a snapshot of someone at a certain point in their life that remains an incredibly important flag in the ground for where they were and who they were at that point. Katie had been trying to make her way as an artist for 10 years and when she finally found herself in London with a publishing deal and a possible record contract, it was Patti Smith who inspired her to take a blind jump off the cliff. And here's this woman who looks what we would now call totally gender fluid. No one said that at the time then, but that's what it was. This full-on androgyny looking at me from the album cover but I'm playing the part of Robert Maplethorpe taking the picture and she's just not trying. And I think as someone who was trying incredibly hard, it struck me deeply that I would like to be someone who wasn't trying hard. I would like to be someone who was just being and making and creating and delivering. There was an inspiration there. But it's, there's something challenging about the photograph where she's just there's an insouciance and she's just like, well, who are you? I know who I am. And I suppose I just really love the coolness of that. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom is inside of me. It means that I'm not hung up with like anybody's idea of how I should be. You know, I'm outside, I'm outside of society. I'm an artist. Rock and roll is my art. 
Along with Katie Tunstall, horses inspired generation after generation of musicians. The Patti Smith Group's legendary performance at the Roundhouse in London in 1976 helped build the foundations of punk in the United Kingdom and Europe. Patty's influence can be heard globally and acts from many musical strains and so many cite her as an influence. Morrissey, Martha Wainwright, Scissor Sisters Anna Montronic, Shirley Mountain of Garbage, Ed Harcourt, electronic classical musician Patrick Wolfe, and Courtney Barnett. Even the Patti Smith Group guitarist Lenny Kay is surprised by the legacy of horses. It is amazing that here, 43 years after we walked out of the studio, uh, having done the final mix, that we are still talking about this album. And I have to say the album, as a band, it sounds young to me. It sounds like we're really straining. We're, we're like ponies. We, we can do it. We can do it. And... There's a certain innocence and a certain uh, naivete to that, which I believe also helped make the album special to so many people. So many people who don't even sound like us. I mean, you know, we've spoken with uh, Bono from U2 or The Edge or Michael Stipe and Peter Buck from R.E.M. And these are people that drew a sense of self-definition from the album and they don't sound at all like us. And not only did Patti Smith and her debut album Horses change the course of rock and roll through inspiring other artists, but it also inspires anyone who listens. The album is transformative. I believe that is true, that, that we believed in the healing power and the inspirational power that is art because we also took our sensibility from that, the sense of transcendence. And that's exactly what Patti Smith made me feel as a suburban teenager all those years ago, that I too could move to New York City and transform myself and mold myself into the person I wanted to be, or in another view, let my true colors shine. And that's what I did with a little inspiration from Patti. She believes in making the people rise, making them aspire to their higher consciousness and does it in a way that's sometimes kind of friendly, sometimes kind of fierce, sometimes very challenging, and sometimes let's have a good time. And that to me is what makes her a unique artist and, and why I feel so privileged to be uh, riding shotgun with her. Our story on Patti Smith's album Horses was produced by Colleen Cosmo Murphy and by me, Jocelyn Gonzalez. For more, visit Colleen's website at classicalbumsundays.com. What's your favorite classic album by a female artist? Tell us at incoming at studio360.org.
Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 